But I just know that with your story today, uh, people are going to be uh, inspired. Welcome to another inspirational message from Gateway Life Church. We're so glad that you've joined us and trust that this podcast will be a blessing to you. Let's just pray. And so, Lord, I just want to say thank you for uh, this opportunity as uh, we just uh, conduct this interview. And we thank you that your anointing is already upon it and it's upon Adrian and all that we're doing here today. And we just say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. The first question I wanted to ask you is, uh, why are you choosing to have this interview today? Uh, Because I believe that people need to have hope. Right. I had none. And so I think that people need to hear um, stories where people have been delivered from situations. A story of hope. We all need hope. Uh, Why do you think we all need hope? I guess, yeah, without hope... um, seem hopeless. I, I didn't believe that things could change for me. Uh-huh. I didn't think they could be better. I think, thought that they would remain the same. Uh, I, I really thought they were stuck in, in that. Wow. And yeah, there, there was no hope of that changing. That's great. That's a great answer. Um, I love what you said. You said you just didn't, didn't think or believe that things could change. Uh, but I just know that with your story today, uh, people are going to be uh, inspired um, why don't you share with us uh, what it was like for you growing up at home? Tell us about your home life. My home wasn't a happy place, not for me. I, I was a, a sensitive child. Um, my parents were young. I guess reflecting they were the product of their environment. Um, three of my grandparents saw active service in World War II and so very, very traumatised people. I remember um, very angry people. I remember my grandfather used a commando roll off the massive Ferguson tractor when it would backfire because he thought the sniper was shooting at him. And uh, my grandmother drank herself to death. Um, so my parents were sort of ill-equipped, I guess. My mum um, emotionally unavailable. Um, I remember her having lots of emotional breakdowns, trying to handle four kids. My dad, full of rage, absolutely full of rage, very unpredictable, very frightened of him. Um, And so I just withdrew. I withdrew into fantasy books. I dreamed of getting out, running away, even planned running away with one of my friends. Um, Yeah, and then at 15, I was introduced to alcohol and it was like, wow. Yeah. Why have they been hiding this from me? <laughs> this, right. is, this is great. <laughs> you know, and, and, and then I just started running away. Mm. I started running away every weekend and I wouldn't come back. I was still at school, but I would disappear on Friday, not come back till Sunday night mm. and just drink and you know, couch surfed at friends' places. School holidays, I'd be gone the whole time. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah. And you were saying that, you know, you're a sensitive child. Um, so what sort of feelings would would you know rise within you when you would see your mother crying can you remember what that sort of felt like for you to see your mum cry like was that confusing or yeah, how I would you not, describe it I didn't understand I guess a, a lot of my childhood has been blacked out I think my brain yeah. doesn't sort of let me go there um, but I do remember your know, mum just going to pieces a few times but we didn't we didn't understand mm, yeah and, and, and I didn't really learn skills I, I became a person that really didn't have skills yeah. for living. 
Yeah. You know, and it, you know, based on what you're saying, it it would be apparent that uh, when you would go through your own issues or trauma or be confused, you didn't have either your mum or dad or, or someone there who could kind of sit down and talk about what's just happened and how to respond and cope with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like most, like most kids growing up, it's probably pretty rare that someone's had a parent or, or a peer who just kind of sat them down and worked through the trauma. Um, so yeah, there's so much that we've got to kind of discover ourselves and, and look to uh, look for uh, comfort and hope, I guess. So, so what was it like growing up with your parents? Like, how would you describe your relationship with your dad and, and also with your mum? And was there one that you feared more than the other? Yeah, definitely feared dad more, but it was, it was sort of weird because when my dad worked long hours, he worked shift work, and so he'd be very, very angry while he was working, but if we went on holidays, it was like he was a different person, and mm-hmm. I, I, I couldn't fathom that. I just I couldn't bring myself to get close to him because I knew we were going to go back home. Okay. Um, my brothers and I, and my sister, I've got two brothers and a sister, we were bounced around our grandparents a lot because mm. just mum couldn't cope with it all. Mm. Dad was very rarely there. Mm. Um, I really liked going to my grandparents' place. And why is that? Um, my grandfather, who, who lived on a farm, that was my dad's father, he, he had come to Christ. He met, oh, wow. Yeah, through my grandmother. Mm. So he was the one that was in Kokoda in Northern Africa. Mm. That used to yeah. roll off the tractor. But he right. was a very gentle, easygoing man. I right. didn't realise then why, he, but he hadn't always been. He'd been a hard drinker, apparently wow. fairly violent and unpredictable. Mm. But he just, just a let's take motorbikes and just give us lots of petrol and oh, really? <laughs> give us guns and we could, you know, it was a 2,000 acre Sounds farm. Like a great and we, yeah, granddad, and, wow. And we, we could just go all day as long as we're back for dinner. We could yeah, do right. whatever we liked. And so, yeah. but in hindsight, that probably wasn't a good thing because we sure. got up to all sorts of stuff. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I've been thinking, you know, like even coming into this interview, like, uh, because I know that you've shared with me, you know, one of the Christian, one of the strong Christian influences that you had, which I know that you're going to talk about later. But I was thinking to myself, there had to be some other seed that was planted in your life early, uh, a seed that was planted that was obviously harvested at the right time, and obviously that was your granddad. You said he was a Christian. So, did did he become a Christian when he came back from the war, or was he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's quite remarkable. So it's more his wife, my grandmother. I mean, he, he died first, mm. and my grandmother used to ring me up, and by then I was well into addiction, and she used to ring up and try and tell me about Jesus. I used to say, look, I don't want to know. Don't, wow. don't tell me. And she'd say, well, I'm going to pray for you. I'm like, okay. Wow. You know, I never knew that. Knock, knock yourself out, but I don't, I don't want to know. Wow. And so, wow. And so she was. She was desperately praying. So. That is amazing. Wow. I just think that's so, so cool. Um, so you talk, you, you've shared with us that you feared your dad more than your mum. Uh, like, how would you describe your relationship with your mum before we get on to your dad? Um, my mum was very gentle and sensitive too, but, uh, but yeah, she was very ill-equipped. She yeah. didn't have confidence in, in her own ability to parent. Mm. You know, she, I think she knew that... Uh, their parenting style was damaging us, okay. but was sort of probably powerless to to change that. Mm, mm. Mm, yeah. Okay. 
and and with your dad like so the father and son relationship like so much of our identity comes from the father um, whether you're a son or a daughter mm -hmm. so much of your identity comes from your dad um, and obviously you're saying that you feared your dad uh, so did that impact you as a man and your identity or did it not or yeah definitely I mean there wasn't really a relationship with him yeah okay yeah uh, when you fear somebody you tend to just keep away yeah, yeah. My, my parents attitude too was that, you know, that children should be seen and not heard and not okay. seen that often so we were yeah. yeah we were outside most of the time when we came yeah. home from school we got changed we went outside we didn't come in until dinner time and then there was a you know brief period of tv and then to bed and that was mm. that was it that um, I want to ask you like another sensitive question. Did you ever hear, because I don't know the answer, but did you ever hear the words from your father? Did he ever tell you that he loved you? Never. Never, yeah. Still hasn't. Still hasn't. Although yeah. my relationship has improved with him. Yeah, that's A lot, wonderful. like I actually speak with him now. And, that's great, and, and it's not. Um, I guess neither of us are tiptoeing around it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's it, good. Name. It used to be very volatile. When I was, was older, you know, I was, I was a big guy. When I left the Navy, I was a big guy. And so my dad and I would be at odds. We, yeah, okay. It, it could, there, there was near blows a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. gotcha. And, and I do think that one of the keys to breaking free of like an over attachment to either what your dad or your mother said negatively or things that you wanted to hear but never heard is to just have radical acceptance. Um, so what age were you when you left home? Um, at 18, I actually finished my HSC. I uh, didn't do as well as I probably could have. But you did, um, that's yeah, great. Yeah, went, went away to uni and I just, I don't think I even really went to lectures very much. I just drank and, and, and smoked <laughs> okay. marijuana and you know, obviously didn't do very well and, and never went back for second year. I came home, I, my parents were really angry because they'd been um, financing that. So I got a job at, at Mars, where Paul works now. Um, it was called Uncle Ben's back then. Yeah, working rotating shifts, good money, moved out with some friends and, and really just, yeah, went crazy, mm. went crazy. Mm. Went crazy, huh? Yeah, that was at 19. Yeah, what does crazy within reason sound like um yeah lots of drugs right lots of drugs drinking crime mm. um anything at all to finance that lifestyle okay and um i hung around with anybody that could help me get, obtain that or obtain money for it um and it just went from one thing to another. It just got worse and worse. So can you share yeah. with us what, where, where it's... So here you are, like, you're lonely, uh, you're broken, mm -hmm. you're looking for hope, you're looking for community, you're looking for connection. Yep. Um, and then obviously it sounds like there's this day when someone offers you something. You'd already been offered alcohol, but then somebody offers you drugs, yeah? Yep. Can you share with us how that... what, uh, Where that started, like, what... What yep. was the, the genesis of, what did you yeah. start taking? Okay, marijuana was probably just before my HSC and it was the same sort of thing. It was like, wow, you know, where has this been my whole life? Because, you know, I, I had a much more in, intense escape, I guess, without, you know, alcohol used to make me sick. I used to drink to the point where I would be really, really ill. 
Um, marijuana didn't do that. Um, at 19, when I moved out, I realised that a lot of my friends were taking amphetamines. It was very expensive, and I, uh, through one of my friends, whose dad was a, a very large dealer, um, I, I could get that stuff. And I was selling it to my friends, and it wasn't long before I was using it. Um, by about early to mid-20s, heroin had hit Aubrey into that as well. Not really backing off the other stuff too, so it just became this desperate struggle to finance this whole thing. Um, in my late 20s, I just threw up my hands, ran away, joined the Navy, did quite well for a while, but then I found there was other people in there that were sort of the same, and that spiralled out of control and eventually got discharged for dirty urine tests. Um, came back to Albury and just decided, that's it, I'm going on an extended holiday, and I went back to what I used to do. Mm -hmm. And that went on for 15 years. And I always promised myself, you know, today, I'm just going to let myself do this today. Tomorrow I'm going to stop. Tomorrow the madness is going to stop. But then I'd wake up and just the entirety of that task was just too much. And so I used to keep a bottle of Valium next to my, next to my um, bed and I would just reach for those because the anxiety would just be so great. And then I would be off again and I'd be sitting there all day just going, you idiot, you, you should have stopped today. And, and, and yeah, it was hopeless. So I think I was 38, my family, I think I was about 38, my, my family convinced me I need to go to rehab. Um, so I started ringing around rehabs and to my disgust, but you know, I was a devout atheist. There was no concept of God and there was no way I was going to believe that. And you know, I used to have those conversations with my grandmother. Uh, to my disgust, Grandier House was the only place that could take me anytime soon, like within six months. And I was like, oh man. And Grandier so, House is a Christian, yes, Christian rehab, yeah. So rehabilitation. It was, it was owned by it was Faith City back then. Mm. And I was like, all right, I'll go. And I remember waking up that first morning. You know, I'd slept it off, I woke up, there's no pills there. And I was like, what have you done? And then, and then of course, <laughs> We've got to go to chapel. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, you know, this is get, getting worse and worse. And they take me to church and I go into um, basically I'm sitting right at the back and this lady comes and sits two, two seats up from me and starts speaking in tongues. And I just jumped up in fright and ran out. <laughs> and Richard Lowry, I think most people here would know Richard. Yeah. He, he was um, the director's husband. He, he came walking in late. He saw me sitting out the front and I'm sitting there smoking a cigarette and I'm shaking. He's like, mate, you're supposed to be in there. I'm like, no, no way. He's like, well, it's part of the program. I'm like, I don't care. I'm not going back in there. He's, <laughs> he's like, well, come in with me. And so we sat right up the back, like in two chairs. And um, yeah, it was, it, it was scary. It was overwhelming. I, um, yeah, I, I didn't know how I got there. <laughs> um, but anyway, I stayed. I stayed 11 months and I started to learn about Jesus. And I guess yeah, I ended up giving my heart to Jesus along the way. I think Michael Geeling was the pastor then. I think everybody was really surprised. But what did it? I think I, 
I realised, you know, I'd been working for the devil. Like, he'd been having a field day in my life for years and he was still having a field day with me at rehab. I was angry. I was discontent. I would be lashing out at people. I'd be wanting to fight people. I am um, very, very, yeah, unpleasant to be around, I guess. And I, I think I realised, you know, if there, if there was evil, then there was good. And then I needed somebody who was going to stick up for me, you know, because... There's some bad stuff going on in my head. It really wasn't good. But then I knew if I left, you know, I was going to go back out there and, and, and they'd be back on the hamster wheel. So I was sort of hamstrung. And so I did. Mm. But, um, yeah, the nonsense in the head continued and I eventually, you know, um, left and got back on the hamster wheel. And um, things really got bad then, you know. By then, meth had hit town, and what wasn't long before that was a part of the equation. And then, and I'd always managed to evade the law, but as soon as the meth was on the scene, you know, then, you know, then I'd have the police attending. They'd be kicking the door in, and um, there was violence in the house. I was, I was in a relationship with another person that was using it. We were at each other all the time, and. It was just crazy. I was getting arrested. And um, I was in a bit of a cycle of, of taking different drugs to alleviate the withdrawal of others. So there was meth. There was very strong narcotics. There was prescription drugs as well. I was just in this really, really bad cycle. And what would happen when the police would arrest me, they'd just dry sell me. They'd just me in a cell and let me detox. And it was just the worst thing you can imagine. It was so painful and I feared it, I really feared it. Um, and my cycle would be, I would be held in custody so they'd ship me off to Juni and I'd go up to the chapel and I'd get a Bible and I'd be in there reading it and um, start to feel better and start to get some hope and then I'd get bailed. Or released, and the and the Bible would sit on the be left on the shelf in the cell, and Adrian would go back to his neighbourhood and swearing that he would have better control over it again and off again. Um, the last time I think I'd been out for between six and eight weeks, so I went back into Judea, and there's still the same people in the remand set section, um, and that was fairly devastating, and I. What had actually happened, I was arrested again, like heavily intoxicated. I think I'd been up for about a week. That was the photo I showed you. Mm. Been up about a week <clears throat> and they put me in the dry cell and I was just vomiting from the fear of having to go through that withdrawal again. And I was just crying. I was going, God, you know, if you really are real, just take me now because I cannot do this anymore. I cannot, it hurts too much. And I remember just um, feeling calm. And there was a voice in my head, and I was, sure, I was sure it was psychosis, but it was saying, you know, you're my child and I love you, and I want to help you, but only you can, you can choose to stop. And, um, and I was having that light bulb moment. Um, and it says, you know, but you have to throw this life away and you have to follow me. And I was like, okay, I will, you know, I'm crying and I'm, and I'd like to say, you know, that it was, was painless, but it wasn't. You know, I still had to go through the withdrawal and 
Um, very, very unpleasant. But yeah, I got, got the Bible again. This is fairly significant too. When, when we used to go up to Junee, they would they were doing a, a psych assessment on you to see if you're a suicide risk. And so they'd ask you these questions like, how often do you feel hopeless and worthless and that there's no reason to live? And my answers were always like nine or 10. And so I, straight away, I'd have this sign on my, on my cell, you know, that said I was a suicide risk. And so you'd have an older inmate in there with you and they'd be checking multiple times a night. The last time I went there, my answers were like in the twos or threes because no, I just wasn't feeling so bad about it. And the psych actually called me up to her office and she said, yeah, I was just looking at your results and it, I think they thought I was putting it on so I really could neck myself, you know. And, and she said, yeah, what's, what's different? And I said, well, this is the last time I'm going to be here. And she said, well, why? I said, well, I'm done with the drugs. I'm just done. And she said, well, how, how are you going to stay stopped? You've been doing it your whole life. I said, I don't know yet, but I, I am. I'm, I'm through. And so I was in there for about eight months, I think, and I read that Bible nearly all day, every day. I would be up at five and I'd be reading it. And um, I hung around with other people that were doing the same thing. I went to Bathurst Correctional Facility, and that's sort of like, if you imagine the Shawshank Redemption, it's sort of something like that. Terrible, terrible, terrible place. Lots of lots of Muslims and I would be out there reading my Bible in the yard and I'd be playing touch football with the Muslim people and just expecting that one day someone was going to put a hit on me, you know, but it never happened. Um, and I eventually went off to rehab again at Wagga and I took the Bible with me. And I got out and I was looking at gyms, I was looking at the Thaguna gym and I was just went, I went to walk in and this voice in my head said, go down and see your mum. And my mum works in, in the bakery, so down near the food court. And I said, it was very, very strong, this message in my head. So I walked down, ran to Paul. And there's a bit of a history there. Paul had taken me to church before and hadn't ended well. And I said to him, oh, I think I'm thinking of coming back to church. And he said, yeah, you should. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they don't like me very much. He goes, don't worry, I'll, I'll have a talk to him. So anyway, I started going back, back, back to church. And little bit by little bit, things started to change. I guess there was no massive change for me. It wasn't a miraculous thing. But I think in my story, God used people. Yeah. So there was always somebody there to yeah. take me that next, on that next lesson. Mm. You know, keep me going for that next season, next season of, of, of the recovery process. And um, that's what happened. So when you said to the uh, parole officer in June E that you're never coming back again, what year was that? That was 2016. Mm. And I've never taken anything again, praise God. And you've never been back? Never been back. And never will be? Well, they're thinking about getting me to go there and do a testimony because I'm friends with it. <laughs> <laughs> Please give him a hand of encouragement. I'm very good friends with Jericho <laughs> Notoro, who's the, the, the um, pastor there. Um, so, yeah. That's so good. When did they uh, contact you to go and do a testimony? No, we've been talking about it for a while, but there's a lot of red tape. <laughs> <laughs>
with, with people going back in there. Oh, okay. Especially, like, I'm, I've been out for seven years. It's amazing. And I, and I don't think they would really consider that okay. for, for ten. Yeah, right, so. I see. You know, uh, you, you've been talking about your addiction to drugs and alcohol and things like that. And addiction comes in so many forms. Um, too many to mention, but the feelings are the same. It's a, it's a desire and whatever. And uh, and so, you know, why do you think you were able to break the cycle? Uh, and it was also interesting to me that you said, oh, you know, I'll just do this today and tomorrow I'll be fine, which is a deception, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's a, it's a part of the sickness, really. Uh, but why do you think you were able to break the cycle? And even though you're still on a journey, and we're all on a journey. But in a nutshell, why do you think you were able to break that cycle? Oh, because I found God. Because you found God, yeah, yeah. yeah. wonderful. Um, the scripture, Hebrews 11, 6, you know, those that come to, to God must believe that he exists and he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Beautiful. And I, I mean, I, I spent eight months every day, all day every day seeking God. I knew. Even though I had doubted in the past, when, when the penny dropped, I knew that was my only way out. I mean, I had tried everything, yeah. absolutely everything to stop. Yeah, you were hungry. You'd really become yeah, exhausted Yeah, I, be, I, be, I with became hungry, else. yeah. And I guess yeah. going to Granyard taught me that. And they, they were telling me that, that your only way out of this is God. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll show you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, sure, I sure showed him, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. That's great. Um, I'm aware that within uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, there's like a 12-step program uh, which is founded upon scripture. And uh, do you have a favorite step there out of the 12? I like them all. I guess yeah. number two, um, and that is, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Yeah, right. Good. And so, um, I love step one too, which kind of reminds me of uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, which talks about, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because in reality, we're all impoverished of spirit, and uh, God knows that, but, you know, our breakthrough is on the other side of us realizing that. And when we have a revelation of our, our sinful and our fallen and our broken state, when we then have a greater revelation that Jesus is our healer and our saviour, that's what makes all the difference. But point number one, uh, step number one in AA is that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol or addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. It's a great first step. It's a thing that they need to acknowledge. It's a thing that we need to acknowledge as Christians and followers of Jesus that, number one, I am a sinner but Jesus is a greater saviour. I guess step one left me devastated because I had always tried to manage my own life. That's what I knew. Right. And, and okay. that's what I had learned and that's what my right. generation always learned. So I, I guess the reason I like step two so much is that it gave me hope. Yeah, okay. And that, you already that, knew about that, one. That, that hope was already there. Oh, yeah. yeah, I knew I was powerless. Mm. My whole life is a testament to that. What do you think about step 12, which says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. What do you think yeah. about that step? Yeah, what do you like about it? Well, that's what I'm doing now. 
Yeah, that's what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> I yeah, the, 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 the ultimate goal of a 12-step program is to carry the message of hope to other people. Mm. Um, that's what it's all about. That's what my sponsor told me. He said, yeah. you know, that's what you need to go and do. And so I do. I've yeah. done talks at schools. I've um, done what we call 12-step calls where you go and speak to people. Mm. And some of those people have remained drug-free. Mm. And uh, another thing that they, uh, that they talk about is that uh, nobody went and actually spoke about the, uh, the program to others, there would be no program. And I don't know about you, but I think about the kingdom of God. You know, this is why Jesus said, go and make disciples. Freely you have received, freely give. And this is why, you know, I believe that what we have is way too good uh, to keep to ourselves. And so as we begin to uh, draw near to a close with this interview, um, did you or do you have like a go-to passage of scripture that for you is like an anchor yeah. for your soul? Yeah, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah. Definitely. I, I have achieved things I never thought would be possible and I, and I know it has to be in my strength. Mm. You know? to remain drug-free this long mm. it would have been inconceivable before I became, before I came to Christ. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, I'm in a successful relationship now. You know, started businesses. I've done, yeah. you know, done a four-year health degree at uni. Say that again. I've You've done, done a... Four-year health degree at uni. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, and passed really well. Um, Lots of things. Yeah, I was a competitive powerlifter. Um, lots of things. It's wonderful, Adrian. And I love to learn now. I love to learn. Say that again. I love to learn now. I love to yeah. read books. I love yeah. to learn about things. Yeah. Um, any final words to uh, our congregation today or anyone listening to this podcast or, or watching this replay? Okay, so my encouragement for, for people through from my experience, if you're struggling with addiction, you need to find people that have... Um, had the same affliction and who have successfully learned to manage that mm. and to overcome it. And so that's where that scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, comes from. No temptation has overtaken you um, except that what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You know, there's, there's nothing, there's no problem we can go through that other people haven't. And, right. and, and help is out there, you know. You just got to find it. Got to find yeah. it. I mean, a great revelation I had was that I, my thinking had got me where I was. I wasn't going to think my way out of it. Right. And, and so when I sought help in, in Narcotics Anonymous, you know, my, all of my thinking was turned almost 180 degrees. You know, that I'm going to use today and quit tomorrow. They were like, no don't use today and don't worry about tomorrow there's there's so many things that didn't make sense to, to my way of thinking mm. um, yeah I, I certainly needed to learn a different way mm. and, and as you said you know all of those concepts you know, they come from the book of James they're, they're all the spiritual concepts you know the 12-step program was initially a Christian program but I think it was only about eight steps it was um, can't remember the name of the group now, right. but it was a Christian organisation that successfully treated alcoholism. 
and then of course you know, Dr Bob and Bill W came along and, and expanded on that and made the 12-step program mm. of AA. But it was initially yeah, a Christian program. Mm. Mm. What I'm going to ask you to do now is to thank God and I'm going to ask you to pray for everyone here who might be struggling in some way with something. So if you could pray for all of us, that would be great. Thank you. Um, dear Lord, um, we, we thank you for this opportunity to come together. I thank you mm. for my, the opportunity that I have had for sharing my testimony. Mm. And we thank you that you are the way maker, that you will yeah. deliver. All we need to do is surrender to you and that you, know, you, you will make a yeah. way and that you will turn tests into testimony and yeah. trial, trials into triumphs. Mm. You know, um, you are the Alpha Omega, and we thank you for that, Lord. Yes. Amen. 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 Well done, Adrian. Uh, thank you so much for this interview today, mate, and uh, I believe that your interview is going to give a lot of people hope. Uh, both for those who are on that journey of hope and those who feel like they have no hope. So thank you again, mate. Please give him another hand as he's seated. God bless you, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Gateway Life Church. For more information, please visit gatewaylifechurch.org.au. God bless and have a great day.